Hello friends, good morning. Yesterday we have started a book reading, Ethics, a very short introduction, written by Simon Blackburn, published by Oxford. And uh, we, we have started Seven Threats to Ethics, topic 1. And already we have seen the two threats to ethics. First, the, de the death of God and second, relativism. And now we are going to see next threat to ethics. Third is egoism. So friends, let's start. Third threat, sorry, third threat to ethics is egoism. We are pretty selfish animals. Perhaps it is worse than that. Perhaps we are totally selfish animals. Perhaps concern for others or concern for principle is a sham. Perhaps ethics need unmasking. It is just the whistle on the engine, not the steam that moves it. How can we tell? Let us think about method for a moment. On the face of it, there are two fairly good methods for finding what people actually care about. One is to ask them and gauge the sincerity of their response and the plausibility of what they say. The other is to see what they do and try to do. Neither method is infallible. People may deceive us. And they may be deceived about themselves. Incidentally, this is not as is commonly supposed and insight due to Fred. It has a philosophical, literary and theological pedigree probably stretching back to the origins of thought itself. A nice early example is the idea of the Greek Stoics that all ambition is due to fear of death. If a man wants statues raised to himself, it is because unconsciously he is afraid of dying. But of course, he is not likely to realize that. A permanent stand in Christian thought is that we have no insight or even lie to ourselves about our heart's desires. Ordinarily, we can cope with fallibility by shrinking the likelihood of a mistake. We can check on what people say by seeing what they do. A man may present himself as a dutiful and nurturing father, uh, sorry, and nurturing father and uh, believe himself to be such. But if he never makes or takes an opportunity to be with his children, we have our doubts. Suppose, though, he does make some uh, he does make such opportunities and gladly takes them and shows few or no regrets for what other pleasures he may be missing by taking them then the thing is settled he cares about his children in other cases the diagnosis of smoke screen and hypocrisy beckons the british government not unlike others currently uses the rhetoric of moral duty, civilized missions 
and the rest in order to sound good but putting peacekeepers uh, sorry but putting peacekeepers into many of the 100 or so countries to whom it regularly and copiously sells arms it is not too difficult to see the mask of concern for what it is everyone likes to have the words of ethics on their side does our nurturing father really care for his children fallibility still threatens life and literature throw up cases where everything looks in line with one interpretation yet another one seems to be hovering maybe this model father is a sacred sorry of uh, maybe this model father is scared of his wife and knows that behavior that apparently indicates concern for his children is what she expects or he may be scared of public opinion or be angling for a certain kind of reputation to further his uh, political career we can look at the settled pattern of his behavior as well as his sayings and still wonder whether things are as they seem. We can. But again, we have method to follow. Suppose the man's wife disappears, but he goes on nurturing as before. Or suppose his political career dies, yet he still carries, uh, yet he still carries on as a good father should. This rules out the idea that it was a fear of his wife or hope of or hope of office that motivated him. The natural interpretation that he cares for the children and enjoys being with them is the only one to survive. In the 19th and 20th centuries, these homely methods began to lose ground. As the Stoics did, people bowed before the idea of hidden and unconscious meanings uncovered only by a grand unifying theory of human nature the idea had one foot in hermeneutics or the practice of interpretation this was originally the enterprise of discovering hidden signatures written by god into natural features so that for example the shape of plants might indicate what they would cure it also meant uncovering the hidden meaning the hidden meanings behind the analog analogies parables and apparently unbelievable historical reports of scripture in its modern application to the hermeneutic eye things may be similarly far from what they seem so we get the view that pacifism conceals aggression or a desire to help mask, a desire for power or politeness is an expression of contempt or contented sorry or contented celibacy expresses a ragging desire to procreate. Perhaps everything comes down to sex or status or power or death. Hermeneutics is very good at one word solutions. It is also good at one-word dismissals of any rejection of its one-word solutions. The truth is repressed. It is hidden by false consciousness. In fact, the subject's resistance to any proffered hermeneutic 
interpretation can become an index of how true it is the ideology becomes closed keeping our feet on the ground we should ask what distinguishes appropriate or accurate use of this method from mere fancy the philosopher karl popper 1902-1904 his period told a story about describing a case to the psychoanalyst alfred adler adler listened to the description and unhesitatingly pronounced castration anxiety father jealousy desire to sleep with the mother or whatever it was when he had finished popper asked him how he knew because of my thousandfold experience came to reply and with this new case said popper according to his own report i suppose your experience has become a thousand and onefold grand unifying theories do not often stoop to offer themselves to empirical test we have strayed here from ethics into fascinating general issues in the theory of knowledge i will make only one further remark a grand unifying theory we can uh, we can go along with the good insights it can unify otherwise desperate and puzzling human phenomena in in his famous book the theory of the leisure class uh, 1899 the sociologist postin weblen noticed a whole slew of strange facts along the following lines first itinerant workers who earn reasonable money tend to be showy carrying flashy jewelry and large bank rolls going in for hashtag poker games and the like rooted peasants who could easily afford it never to never do so second people deplored the test of others who are just a little beneath little beneath them in wealth and social status more than they deplored the test of those a long way beneath them thought an aristocrat will prefer an able body man as a butler or footman rather than a female or someone handicapped who could do the job equally well fourth a well kept lawn or park is a good thing round a nice house weblen unified these o- these odd facts and many others with the theory that people have a need for wasteful display in order to manifest their status the itinerant has to display the status on his person and hence the flashy appearance we need to shout that uh, we are not like those just beneath us on the social ladder or for or for, for whom we might be mistaken more than we need to shout that we are not like those a long way beneath us for whom we won't be mistaken the aristocrat who might after all be impoverished can better signal plenty by keeping able bodied servants in unproductive jobs than if he keeps otherwise unemployable ones in their positions hence footmen and butlers similarly with gardens lawns and parks which are beautiful just because they are ornamental and unproductive weblen thought the need controls aesthetic judgments as well weblen's insight is summed up as the doctrine of conspicuous uh, 
consumption but the label is in fact a, a misnomer the rooted peasant does not consume conspicuously he does not have to just because everyone he cares about knows to within an atom what he is worth the view that consumption has has a lot more to do with vanity or status than we might have supposed is immediately plausible and uh, was anticipated by many other thinkers including adam smith uh, adam smith's uh, period is uh, 1723 to 90 but once weblen has stated it in a more precise form we can test it against our own experience and find if it works it has the hallmarks of a good scientific theory it is simple it gives a unified explanation of otherwise diverse and disconnected patterns of behavior it is a predictive for instance it would predict the pressure on the rooted peasant to put on a suit for his journey to town where his worth is unknown and it is a falsifiable for we might come across instances where the theory seems not to work and it would need adjusting or abandoning in the light of them most grand unifying theory and particularly what we might dub grand unifying pessimism is not so well favored consider the uh, disparaging view that everybody always acts out of their own self interest it can be very unclear what this means but taken at face value it is obviously false people neglect their own interest or sacrifice their own interest to other passions and concerns this neglect or sacrifice need not uh, even be high minded the moralist joseph butler uh, 1692 to 1752 gives uh, the example of a man who runs upon certain ruin in order to avenge himself for an insult friends with his uh, interest at heart might try to dispute him but fail what this man may need to do is to act more out or uh, act to act more out of self interest so that uh, anticipating his ruin checks his uh, uh, desire for revenge but if his his desire had been for the welfare of others or for the preservation of the rainforest or for the reduction of third world debt the fact that he was neglecting or sacrificing his own interest might have seemed irrelevant it is what the situation calls for in his eyes and if we share his standards perhaps in ours as well if he spends his fortune or ruins his health on these objects he may regard himself as only having done what he had to do this is a trick to be guarded against at this point someone might read the last paragraph and complain that is all very well if we think of someone's self interest only in terms of money or career or even health certainly people sacrifice these to other concerns but uh, then we just have agents whose real interest or full self interest includes these other things the revenge or the rainforest or the third world debt they are still just as self interested as anyone else the reason this is a trick is that it empties the view of all content 
it kidnaps the word self interest for whatever the agent is concerned about but just for that reason it loses any predictive or explanatory force with this understanding of interest or self interest you could never say watch the agent won't do this but will do that because like all agents she acts out of self interest all you can do is wait to see what the agent in fact does and then read back and uh, boringly announce that this is where her interest lay the move is not only boring but a nuisance since as the butler puts it this is not the language of mankind it would have a saying that if i stand back in order for the women and children to get in the lifeboat then my self interest lay in their of beings in the lifeboat rather than him and this is just not the way we describe such an action it appears to add a cynical reinterpretation of the agent but in fact it adds nothing perhaps surprisingly we can see the general falsity of egoism by thinking of particular cases where it is indeed true these are cases where an appearance of some larger concern does in fact disguise self interest suppose two people give to a charity suppose it comes out that the charity is corrupt and proceeds do not go to the starving poor but to the directors and suppose that on receiving this news the first person is irritated and angry not so much at the directors of the charity but at the person bringing the news why bring this up just let me be whereas the second person is indignant at the directors themselves then we can reasonably suggest that uh, the first person prized his own peace of mind or reputation for generosity more than he cared about the starving poor whereas the second has a more genuine concern for what goes on in the world not for whether he is comfortable or how he stands in the eyes of others fortunately however we are not all like the first person or not all the time we can be indignant at the director just as we are indignant at uh, many things that go on around us we don't always shoot the messenger messengers and we can want to be told the truth because it is a truth that concerns us then uh, fourth threat to ethics evolutionary theory there exists a vague belief that some combination of evolutionary theory biology and neuroscience will support a grand unifying pessimism indeed most of the popular books on ethics in the bookstores fall into one of the two camps there are those that provide chicken soup of the soul a uh, soggy confection uh, confections of consolation and uh, uplift or there are those that are written by one or another life scientist or neuroscientist or biologist or animal behaviorist uh, or evolutionary theorist anxious to tell that science has shown that we are all one thing or another once more we stand unmasked human beings are uh, human beings are programmed we are egoistics uh, uh, altruism doesn't exist ethics is only a flagly for selfish strategies we are all conditioned women are nurturing men are rapists we care about all for our uh, for our genes 
there there is a good news and bad news about the popularity of the chant the good news is that we we do have a relentless appetite for self interpretation there is a huge desire to find patterns of behavior enabling us to understand and perhaps controlling the human flux the bad news is that we will accord authority to anyone in a white coat even when the science is over for as we are about to see talking of the significance of the uh, science is not talking science we should only venture into uh, into this literature if we are armed against three confusions the first is this it is one thing to explain how we come to be as we are it is a different thing to say that we are different from what we think we are yet these are fatally easy to confuse with each other suppose for instance evolutionary theory tells us that a mother love is an adoption this means that it has been selected for because animals in which it exists reproduce and spread their genetic material more successfully than ones in which it is it does not we could if we like imagine or imagine a gene for mother love then the claim would be that uh, animals with this gene uh, are and have been more successful than animals having only a variant or allele that does not code for mother love this is likely to be grossly uh, or simplified but it's a model that will make the point the confusion would be to infer that therefore there is a not really any such thing as a mother love thus we unmask it the confusion is to infer that underneath the mask we are only concerned to spread genetic material more successfully not only does this not follow but it actually contradicts the starting point the starting point is mother love exists and this is why the conclusion is that mother love doesn't exist in other words an evolutionary story plausible or not about the genetic function of a trait such as mother love must not be confused with a psychological story unmasking a mother's real concern we should not rear a generation of children taught to turn round and say you didn't really care about me you only cared about your genes perhaps nobody would make this mistake so uh, badly in this instance but consider the idea of reciprocal altruism altruism uh, sorry uh, but consider the idea of reciprocal altruism okay game theorist and biologist noticed that animals frequently help each other when it would seem to be to their advantage not to do so they asked the perfectly good question of how such behavior could have evolved when it looks said to lose out uh, to a more selfish strategy the answer is or maybe that it is adaptive in so far as it triggers reciprocal helping behavior from the animal helped 
or from others witnessing the original event in other words we have a version of you scratch my back and i'll scratch yours the explanation may be perfectly correct it may provide the reason why why we ourselves have inherited altruistic tendencies the confusion strikes again however when it is inferred that altruism doesn't really exist or that we don't really care disinterestedly for one another we only care to maximize our chance of getting a return on our investments of helping behavior the mistake is just the same inferring that the psychology is not what it seems because of its functional explanation but it seems more uh, seductive here probably because we fear that the conclusion is true more often in this uh, case than in the case of mother law there are indeed cases of seeming altruism disguising hope for future benefits but there are of course cases in which uh, it is not like this and shown to be such by the methods of the last section the driver gives the penny lace or hitch hiker a lift the dinner tips the waiter he knows he will never see again they each do it when there are no bystanders to watch the action to guard against his uh, to, to guard against this confusion contemplate sexual design it has an uh, it has an adaptive function presumably which is the propagation of the species but it is completely off the wall to suppose that those in the grip of sexual desire really want to propagate the species most of the time most of us uh, emphatically do not otherwise there would be no birth control elderly sex homosexuality solitary sex and other variations and many people people never do some moralist might wish it uh, were otherwise but it isn't so this first confusion is uh, uh, is to infer that our apparent concerns are not our real concerns simply or from the fact of an evolutionary explanation of them the second confusion is to infer the impossibility that uh, such and such a concern should exist from the fact that we have no evolutionary explanation for it this is unwarranted for it may well be that there is no evolutionary explanation for all, for all kinds of quicks no explanation for why we enjoy bird song or like the test of a, a cinnamon a cinnamon or how ticklish fit the cartoon says it all these traits may be side effects of others that are adaptive or they may be descendants of traits that were once adaptive but are so no longer or they may be nothing to do with adaptations but just due to chance or they may be adaptions but only because they affect the eye of the beholder perhaps it is more pleasurable to be with 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 the partner who who has a ticklish feet and then a much mechanism of sexual selection kicks in into boost the prevalence of the trait that throws us back onto the question of why the pleasure and the preference exist but perhaps it it just does female peacocks go for the huge beautiful but apparently dysfunctional tails of the male and female irish eeks 
went for the male part practically immobilized by the biggest antlers it is not easy to see why and this problem can unfit explanations in terms of sexual selection for some purposes for instance if we find the human propensity for art or music puzzling because we cannot find a survival function for it it doesn't immediately help to suggest that females prefer artistic and musical men since we won't be able to find a survival function for that female preference either what this means is that the explanation has to continue it might continue by show, showing that females recognize that art artistry and musicians um, musicianship indicate other survival or uh, enhancing traits such as industry or cunning the peacock's gaudy tail may indicate freedom from disease or the eeks antlers indi indicate its strength <coughs> sorry <coughs> or or it may uh, sorry or it might postulate a trembling hand a random jerk in the evolutionary process such as the inaccurate copying of a gene that that has happened to entrench itself the third confusion to god uh, sorry to the third confusion to guard against is to read psychology into nature and in particular into the gene and then read it back into the person whose gene it is the most notorious example of this uh, mistake is in uh, the selfish gene by richard dawkins here the fact that uh, genes replicate and have a different chance of replicating in different environments uh, in a presented meta metaphorically in terms of their being selfish and indulging a kind of ruthless competition to beat out other genes it is then inferred that the human animal must itself be selfish since somehow this is the only appropriate psychology for the vehicle in which these little monsters are carried or at least if we are not selfish it is because by some strange miracle we can transcend and fight off the genetic pressure to be so dokins uh, uh, has uh, since uh, repudiated this idea but it maintains a life of its own to state this uh, this uh, train of thoughts uh, sorry to to state this train of thought is to expose its silliness genes are not selfish they just have different chances of replicating themselves in different environments not only may they do better if the person carrying them is unselfish altruistic and principle uh, uh, sorry and principle but it is easy to see why this should be so a society of unselfish altruistic and principled persons is obviously said to do better than a group in which they are none of these traits but only a war of all against all furthermore the environment in which we human beings flourish is largely a social environment we succeed in the eyes of each other hence a principle like that of sexual selection kicks in if these are traits we admire in each other they are likely to be successful not only for the society as a whole but also for any individual who has them and we do admire them we we see more of the association between uh being good and living well in section 70 okay so here 
we are going to stop so thank you thank you very much